We have been uh, engaged in the beginning of an exposition of the Epistle to the Hebrews. And I do want to welcome all of you that are joining us at this, this point. We have done a number of messages on these first four verses because they are central to the rest of the letter. If we miss some of the great treasures in these four verses, it's quite likely we will miss or not make the connections between this and what is unfolded. The beauty and the glory of the Trinity, our God, is displayed before us throughout the 13 chapters of this book. And we especially are treated to the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. I know of no other New Testament work apart from the Gospels themselves that so beautifully sets before us the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I do pray that as we spend this time uh, laying the groundwork, laying the foundation for the rest of our messages, that you will find uh, each message uh, to contain some treasure that you can take with you through the rest of the book. There is much that unlocks the beauty of this wonderful revelation from God in these first four verses. That being said, uh, we're going to stand one more time. Please stand with me as I read the scriptures. Now, we've been reading it together. I'm going to change that this morning. Uh, I have a, a reason for that. We have read it together a number of times. Uh, now I, I want you just to hear it washing over you. Give your attention to the, the, the precious truths that are here. <clears throat> and uh, we, will, we will have other times, I think, when we will be reading together. But this morning, I just want the Word of God to come to you. And I want you to listen and think carefully now that you've read it many times. Hebrews chapter 1, <clears throat> beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand, of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Amen. Amen. Please remain standing for our morning prayer. 
if you have any condition that makes it difficult for you to remain standing, please uh, feel free to be seated. <clears throat> Brethren, let's unite our hearts at the throne of grace because we've just heard once again that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Oh, blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray that thy people have gathered this morning with joyful hearts, that the Spirit of Christ has shed abroad the love of God in their hearts, and that they have come filled with joy to magnify and glorify him who loved us before the foundation of the world, who sent his Son into this world to save us from our sins, who sent the Holy Spirit to open our hearts in the new birth, to bring us to repentance and faith in the crucified and resurrected Lord, to give us hearts that understand, that believe, and that obey this precious word. O Father, O Holy Son and Holy Spirit, we praise Thee, our great Creator, our great Redeemer. Thou didst see us in our blood, and Thou didst say, Live, live. And thy people are living, translated out of the kingdom of darkness, out from under the, the wretched rule of Satan and the powers of darkness, and translated into the glorious kingdom of his dear Son, translated into that kingdom of light. Oh, while this world suffers and agonizes, and is in turmoil because of its darkness. In thine amazing grace, thou didst come and pluck us, pluck us up, and granted us life. Blessed be thy holy name now and forevermore. May our hearts sing to thee. May our hearts shout thy praises. May we be filled with an overwhelming and overcoming joy. Lord, again, these are thy people. These are the people, along with the gatherings of thy people throughout this planet, that were the focus and the targets of thy love before thou didst say, let there be light. Thou didst love them. Thou didst see them in their filth and in their rebellions in their hatred of thee and of thy word and sometimes of thy people. And yet thou didst send light and truth and power to raise us from our spiritual death. How we praise thee this morning. May our hearts truly be united. O Prince of Peace, fill this place with thy peace. I do pray one exception, I pray, O oh Lord, 
knowing that there is no peace to the wicked, trouble them until they come to Christ. Trouble them and make them see there is nothing but a hopeless future except they come to him who died on Calvary's cross, who rose again the third day, who is seated in glory, O Father, at thy right hand, and who intercedes for us and for all thy people around this world. We do pray for all of thy people, wherever they are, whatever their condition. Lord, we remember the saints of God and all those bereaved and afflicted in Maui. We pray, O righteous Father, that thou wouldst deal in that situation and expose the truth. And Father, we do pray, we do pray that the love of thy people would pour out to that place and to all around the world. Father, the fires of Maui are out. The fires of hell are still burning. Help us. Help us to speak of Christ. Help us to preach Christ. Help us, O God, to give someone a tract. Help us to live in such a way that people cannot help but notice we are not running with the crowds on the the broad way to destruction, but that we are swimming upstream to that glorious day when we are brought into thy kingdom with thee. O Jesus, wouldst thou now come and pour out thy blessed spirit as we read and as we hear thy word. I can do nothing. I cannot dive into the hearts of one soul here. But Lord, thy word can pierce the greatest darkness, can shatter the hardest hearts, and can bring true life where there is but death. Come, O God, magnify thyself in our midst. May it all be to thy everlasting glory and to the joy of thy people. We pray it in thy name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In time past, that is, from the creation of the world until Jesus Christ was born, God spoke in various times and in diverse ways by his servants, the prophets. The prophets were the voice of God to his people. But in these last days, that is, The time of Christ's first coming until his second coming. God has spoken by his son. That is central to the message of Hebrews. Jewish Christians were facing perilous times of persecution. It was safer for them to return to Judaism and its old covenant than to face persecution for following Christ in his new covenant. So the Holy Spirit begins this sermonic letter by revealing that God speaking by his Son 
was superior, vastly superior to the revelation of the prophets. In fact, Jesus the Son was and is the fulfillment of the prophet's revelation. Peter says of the prophets that the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Furthermore, by the grace of God, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we have learned that Hebrews refers to Jesus the Son in two ways. Number one, as the eternal Son of God, second person of the Holy Trinity. And two, as the God-man, truly human and truly divine in one person, Jesus the Christ. Now we can think of this in another way. Hebrews gives us a Trinitarian Christology. Jesus is the eternally begotten Son. And an incarnational Christology. Jesus is the God-man. Children, that word Christology means the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine about Jesus, his person and his work. So when we talk about a Trinitarian Christology, we're talking about the way Jesus is presented to us in this letter. And in a Trinitarian Christology, we see his place as the eternal Son, God the Son. And when we say an incarnational Christology, we are talking about that extraordinary miracle of Jesus being truly man. There wasn't a molecule in his body that wasn't humanity that wasn't human. And yet, in the virgin's womb, there was such an extraordinary miracle by the Holy Spirit that the eternal Son, the Trinitarian Son, was united with humanity in one person. Incarnational Christology. Both of those are set before us in the Amazing 13 chapters of this letter. So, to magnify the superiority of Christ's revelation over the prophets, the Holy Spirit gives us seven assertions or seven descriptions of Christ. The first one, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, God the Father has appointed his Son to be heir of all things. This is in fulfillment of Psalm 2.8. I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. And his inheritance goes further than that. 
much further. As the son who accomplished his father's mission of salvation, he has the right to everything in existence. Everything. In the first description, we see the son as the God-man. In that description, we see the God-man, mission accomplished, the eternal Son of God, united to humanity, going to the cross to save his people from their sins, rising again the third day, ascending into glory, and becoming the heir of all things. Number two, by whom also he made the worlds. The Son is also the almighty creator of the universe. The Son is the uncreated creator of everything that exists. In that description, we see the Son as Almighty God. From the first, which is incarnational, to the second, we see Trinitarian Christology. These things are scattered all the way through this extraordinary book. Number three, which we considered last week, who being the brightness of his glory. Jesus the Son is the radiance, the effulgence of his Father's glory. And his Father's glory is the radiant outshining of his splendor, his majesty, his perfections, his godhood. As the beams of the sun in the sky radiate its glory, so the God-man radiates the glory of his heavenly Father. John's Gospel says, The Word was made flesh. Here we see the incarnation, but we see both aspects of this Christology. The Word, the eternal Word, God the Son was made flesh. It begins Trinitarian and it comes to incarnation. Say, why is that important? That's why there is salvation. There is salvation because the eternal Son of God became a man to be the perfect holy sacrifice for the sins of his people. That is the love of God. That is the amazing grace of God. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. John, John says, we get it now. We didn't realize what we were seeing at first. We heard the most astounding preaching we'd ever heard. We saw the most amazing miracles. None of us had ever seen anything like it. Now we understand what we were seeing. The God-man was at work. He was showing forth the glories of God in our very presence. Blessed be the name of God that he would so love sinners that he would send his son to become flesh so that he could do what God cannot do. And that is to die. Man sinned. The God-man died. 
His godness could not die, but the man did. So in this, we see the emphasis on the Son and His deity. Once again, we, we see that deity, the Word, was made flesh. Then we hear that incarnational. And yet what's focusing, what, what it focuses us on is the glory. The glory, the radiant outshining of God in a human body. Mm. Now with that, the title of our message is Seven Descriptions of Christ, Image and Power of God. And may our loving Heavenly Father hear our prayers to Christ, our intercessor, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And may he open the eyes of our understanding. So today we take up the fourth description, the fourth and the fifth, God willing. So <clears throat> this tells us, verse 3, that the Son is the express image of God's person. The Son is the express image of God's person. The Holy Spirit now says that the Son is the express image, the express image of His person. The Holy Spirit has told us that Jesus is the brightness of God's glory, the radiant outshining of God's godness. The words express image translate a Greek word that means exact representation exact representation the exegetical dictionary of the new testament says that the greek word refers generally to the impression on a coin the image it says especially the image on the coin the impression of a seal indeed ultimately to coins stamps or seals themselves. Commentator F.F. F. Bruce said, quote, He is the very image of the essence of God. Now that's a simple statement, but that's overwhelming. Let me repeat that. He is the very image. We can't see the living God Immortal, invisible, God only wise. We can't see him and live, the scripture says. So God in his love and in his mercy sent his son into this world to take humanity so that he could show forth the glory of God in something we could understand. So Bruce says he's the very image Jesus, the God-man, now we're into incarnational Christology. The incarnation, that miracle. The very image of the essence of God, which we cannot see, which we can't put in a bottle, which we can't put under a microscope. Bruce goes on. 
the impress of his being. Just as the image and superscription on a coin exactly correspond to the device on the die. In other words, he's talking about the stamp that makes that image on the metal. Or he's talking about the stamp when you would take in those days uh, an important letter. You would drip hot wax on it, and then you would take a stamp, a die, and you would stamp your symbol on it to say, my authority is on this letter. Jesus Christ is the stamp in human flesh of Almighty God. The impress of his being. We can't get over that. Just as the image and superscription on a coin exactly correspond, so the Son of God bears the very stamp of his nature. The Greek word character, opposing here, or occurring here only in the New Testament. This is the only place it, it, that, it, that it appears. It expresses this truth even more emphatically than ekon. Uh, that's the word from which we get our word icon, <clears throat> which is used elsewhere to denote Christ as the image of, of God. So, what uh, Christ is not is that impress, and he is the exact representation and embodiment. Now, what does that mean, really? Well, it means what God essentially is in his greatness, in his godness, what what there is about him that sets him utterly apart from us. Jesus came in our nature to show forth the glories of God. What God essentially is, says Bruce, is made manifest in Christ. To see Christ is to see what the Father is like. Close quote. Now we hear this when Jesus reproved his disciple Philip. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. We'll be satisfied if you just show us God your Father. <laughs> Lord had a lot of patience. <clears throat> Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. As much of God as you can see, you could see it in Jesus. And that's all you'll ever see on this side. And we will not see him physically. We see him in the spirit-inspired revelation that is before us. God's book sets the holy portrait of Christ before us. Passage after passage. So, rightfully, Jesus can say, How sayest thou then, show us the Father? You are seeing the glory of God. Would you hear me preach? 
When you see me heal the sick, when I raise the dead, you are seeing the glory of God in this world. Let me stop right there. Do you know that Jesus? That's the only one there is that saves. Well, there's a lot of Jesuses all over the landscape. Get on the internet, there's a whole lot of people saying, oh yeah, we love Jesus. And he's just as false as an idol standing in India. False Jesuses cannot and do not save, but they do this very well. Listen carefully. They anesthetize the human soul so that people think they are ripe in God when they're still on their way to hell. False Jesuses cannot save. This Jesus alone saves because of who he is and what he's done. We hear the same thing in a slightly different way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Are you hearing that language? It is hidden to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. The light of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Why are they atheists? Because Satan has blinded them. They may be the most brilliant men on the planet, but they are utterly cut off in, in darkness before God. Because there is no neutrality in this world. You are under the powers of darkness until Jesus Christ opens your eyes. No one will set you free but Jesus Christ. No one. Again, Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. Who is, the, who is speaking of Christ, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or power. All things were created by him and for him. You hearing that? That's his world out there. What are you doing with it? He's the only one that can look at anything here on the earth or look into the realm of the supernatural. He can look at all of it and say, Mine, you can't, I can't, but he can, because he made it all. So then, everything was made by him and for him. Everything, everything, and it's all moving in the direction that he has purposed. It doesn't look like it. We look around us, we look at the news, we hear the lies that come flooding over the internet and all of the stuff that's out there. What we need in the midst of it is truth. Here's the truth. Christ is the God-man. He created all things. He's governing all things. His people understand that. The world hates the thought of it. So then the Spirit reveals to us that Jesus is the exact representation of his Father's being. 
This is our Lord. Let me repeat that. This is our Lord. This is our Savior. There isn't another one. This is our God. Do we think of Jesus as God or just a bicycling buddy? Who is Jesus? He is the Almighty before whom all heaven fall on their faces. I hope you know that Jesus. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 18 tell us that Jesus went into the synagogue of Nazareth. He stood up and read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, is what that great text says. Imagine Jesus is in the synagogue. They're gathered for worship. This man, and this was his practice, he goes in and he begins to read from the scrolls of Scripture. He reads from Isaiah, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. The text goes on to say, all bear him witness. Everybody there, everybody that heard him would give this testimony to everybody else. And it's this. They wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. They were amazed by what he said. They were amazed by his words. Gracious, powerful words. Why was everybody impressed? They were hearing God's words from God's Son. That's why. And that's what we ought to be praying for every time we gather. Whatever weak and feeble human vessel is standing up here trying to preach, the only thing that will be effective is bringing this word faithfully to God's people. And they must come by the power of God's Holy Spirit or it will be useless. You might get a whole bunch of new Bible facts. But if that's all that you get, you'll probably just become proud of what you think you know. But when the Spirit of God comes, we worship. We bow down. We follow Jesus. The Christ of God stood before the people in the synagogue. It was his hometown. And what did he declare? This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Everyone that was impressed with his gracious words then wanted to kill him and take him out and throw him off of a cliff. The Spirit of Christ spoke by the prophet Isaiah. But now... God was speaking through his son. I hear we have an example of it. In the Old Testament, Isaiah spoke. 
In the New Testament, Jesus Christ says, here's what Isaiah said, and I'm fulfilling it. God was speaking through his son and affirming from Isaiah that Jesus was the promised gospel preacher. Revelation made real. In John's gospel, chapter 12, verses 47 through 50, we hear Jesus declare, I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me, now listen carefully, don't miss this, he that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words. God is speaking. That's why he warns. Listen to what he goes on to say. Those that receive not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I've spoken. The same shall judge him in the last day. Do you get this? When a faithful man stands in the pulpit, takes the holy words of God, the holy words of Christ, and sets it before you in the day of judgment, if you have not repented of your sins and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, that very, that those very words that you heard will judge you. God spoke to you and you refused it. What a horrible thing that God would so love that he would actually speak to us and speak to us the words of life. And we would sit, we would nod our head, maybe do some Bible thumping once in a while, say amen if the pastor says something about uh, guns or abortion or whatever you want to thump your Bible about. But it's all about hearing God Believing God, obeying God, believing his son whom he sent to give you God's words. And his words are about Jesus. Listen, he goes on. Jesus says, for I have not spoken of myself, but the father which sent me. The father which sent me. He gave me a commandment what I should say, and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. What's his, what's his word? This is my son, hear him. Right? Is that not what God said? This is my beloved son, hear ye him. He's speaking. What's he saying? There's everlasting life. In the words that God is speaking to you. He hath given me a commandment. What I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak therefore. Even as the father said unto me. So I speak. When people heard Jesus preach, they were hearing 
God. Through God's exact representative. He didn't say a single word that the Father didn't want him to say. And his commandment was life. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. He is the word of life. He speaks the words of life. Well, I want an experience. You're having one right now. God's word is speaking to you. It's not just a loud vessel of dust working out some kind of strange religious job that he has. Faithful men preach God's words and they do the best they can to set them before whoever hears them because these are God's words and they alone save. When Jesus finished that sermon of sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, we read, And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings. It's all about words. The people were astonished at his doctrine. They were amazed. They were dumbfounded. They were in awe that this Nazarene was speaking with such authority. Why was there so much authority in what he did? He was God-man. And he brought God's words. You believe God's words or you don't. There's not a middle option. There is no neutrality. As Jesus said, he that is for us is not against us. He that is not for us is against us, period. If you will not bow, if you will not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you will not believe on the God-man, the crucified, resurrected, and ascended Lord, you have set yourself against God, and you will not win that battle. Those that heard Jesus and were astonished said he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. They weren't lackeys. They weren't internet preachers begging for your bucks. Even Jesus' enemies said, never man spake like this man. I mean, they went to capture him. And they came back empty-handed. They said, why didn't you bring him? They said, no one's ever spoken like that. There's a reason. This was the God-man. And the power and authority was all his. And that is because Jesus was and is the exact representation of God. What God is in his essence, his spirit, Christ Jesus was and is in his essence as deity. 
So when people heard Jesus preach, when they saw Jesus heal, when they saw him raise the dead, when they saw him cast out demons, they were seeing what God the Father is like. He would say, well, we didn't get to see that, so we don't know about it. That's why he gave you his Bible. Every day, it will show you the same miracles. You won't forget. No matter how you look at this, God has given you his words. And you believe them. All right, I repeat, or you do not. There's not any other option. So, as the express image of God the Father, Jesus Christ is in every way superior to the prophets that spoke in the Old Testament. This is why this assertion, this true statement is made about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the exact, the express image, the representative of Almighty God when he preaches. The prophets couldn't say that. They could say that they represented God. They could say, here are the words of God, but they were sinful men themselves. When Isaiah saw his glorious vision of God, he fell down and said, woe is me. He didn't say, hey, bud, wow, heard a lot about you. Jesus is in every way superior to the prophets who spoke in the Old Testament. And we need to hear him in these perilous times. I have to ask another, I have to ask another question. I have to. Do you hear him? Do you hear him? His words are kept for you right here in his book. All the ones that God wants for you to hear. There are enough words in here and so many calls from God. In the day of judgment, you will have no excuse. We need to hear him. In these perilous times, what a blessing it is to hear him in his word. What a blessing it is to see his grace, his mercy, his love, his kindness, his goodness. And to hear the sweet and wonderful words, come unto me. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Mm. Well... The Son upholds all things by his powerful word. That's the next, that is the next description of the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> the holy author declares that the Son, now these are the words on the page, upholding all things by the word of his power. Let that sink in. Upholding all things by the word of his power. Do you see this universe you live in? Have you learned some things about it? He not only made it, he sustains every molecule. Do you believe that? Who could have that kind of power? 
God. Once again, we hear an extraordinary description of the Son. It's so easy for us to read those seven things and move right on. But to stop and meditate on this, upholding all things by the word of his power. If any of the seven descriptions shout that the Son is truly God, it's this one. It would take God, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, wise, infinite, eternal, etc., to uphold every existing creature and thing. Israel acknowledged this. Israel got it, at least at one point. As the returned captives of Israel gathered with fasting sackcloth and earth on their heads, they confessed their sins of marrying foreign wives against God's covenant law. The Levites then stood up and said to them, Hear the people, they're weeping, they're moaning. They know they've sinned against God. They've just come out of captivity. And they're breaking the very covenant that sent them into captivity. So the priests say to the people, stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. And blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Thou, even thou, art God alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all things that are therein, the seas and all that is therein, and thou preservest them all. You hear those words? He didn't just make them. He's not the God of the deist. He didn't just make it like a wind-up clock and throw it out there and say, okay, I've made that, and it's working on its own. Okay, good. I'm going to go to something else more important now. No, he made it, and he sustains it. Israel got this. Goes on to say, thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worship thee. Only one can create all things and sustain all things. And that's God. And we're told here by the author to the Hebrews, Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. Present scientific calculations tell us that our universe is at least... 93 billion light years across. You've heard that before, but I'm repeating it. 93 billion light years. For those of you that love math, go work that out and find out how far a light year is and then do the math on how broad they've been able to see 
This is what they call the observable universe because they haven't gotten to the end. They haven't bumped into that sign where that, that, that says universe ends here. It doesn't say that. No, 93 billion light years across. We could stop there, but I've got some more numbers for you. I want you to think about this. There are approximately, in the observable universe, two trillion galaxies. We're just in one galaxy, and we're not the biggest. Two trillion galaxies and two billion trillion stars in the universe. Now, two, 200 billion trillion is a two with 23 zeros following it. Is that a big number? My computer can't handle it. I mean, it, it just begins, it sputters out. Now, all this, again, is the observable universe. And at least now on the, on the astronomy and the space pages, they go, uh, we haven't found the end of this thing yet, so we can only guess. We can only guess by what we can see, but there's more. Yeah, there is. These numbers just went by all of us, right? We can't imagine something that is a two with 23 zeros behind it. That's a number that's just off the charts. Astronomy websites do not always agree on the biggest star, but a star named U-Y, Scuti, believe that's the right pronunciation, has a radius 1,700 times larger than the radius of our sun. Radius is the point in the center that goes to the perimeter. So if our sun is this big, it's 1,700 times larger. That's a big star. According to space.com, more than a million Earths could fit inside our sun. And almost five billion of our suns could fit inside UY Scuti. That's just one mega giant star. There are trillions. On the other hand, some contend that the quark is the smallest particle in the universe. A lot of discussion about that. I'm, I'm not making any dogmatic statements. Uh -uh. Which is approximately one billionth of a billionth of a centimeter. That's tiny. <laughs> That's a period that has 16 zeros in front of the one. Everybody should be saying, I don't get any picture from what you're saying from these numbers. They're too big. And if you're thinking that way, you are correct. Unless you're a math genius and you've done all the numbers in your head, there are those who could do it, no doubt. But I would be willing to say that's probably not true for any of us here. But stop and think about this for just a minute. 
Jesus Christ spoke that into existence and sustains it. And we can't find the borders. Psalm 147, beginning in verse 4 through 6, says, He telleth the number of the stars. In other words, the word telleth there in the, in the King James means counts. He counts the stars. He numbers the stars. He calleth them all by their names. For those of you who have more than five children, and when you're getting frustrated with them, you're going, I, you! You can't remember that name. Imagine billion trillions of names. Jesus knows them all. He remembers them. He made them. Jesus is the God-man. He calleth them all by their names. Great is our Lord and of great power. We can't say it big enough, can we? Great is our God. Great. His understanding is infinite. The Lord lifteth up the meek. Oh, isn't that encouraging? That God who knows all the names of the stars knows your name. He hasn't lost you in the crowd. He knows every one of his children. He knows every one of their needs. He knows every one of their battles. He knows every struggle that they're going through. He knows when they're weeping, when they're weeping over their sin or just weeping because they didn't get their way. He knows every single aspect of you and he hasn't ever forgotten you. You might think that. His providences might say to you sometimes, he left me. Christians feel like that sometimes. The Puritans call that the, the doctrine of the withdrawing God. But he never has. And he never will. He upholds everything by the word of his power. From the universe to the sagging and weeping heart of his people. That God whose understanding is infinite lifteth up the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, Jesus holds all things together by the word of his power. This description of the Son points definitively to his deity. That takes us back to what we were saying at the very beginning. We have a Trinitarian Christology in Hebrews, and we have an incarnational Christology. We see Christ as the eternal Son of God, the creator of heaven and earth along with his Father and the Holy Spirit. And at the same time, There's a man, a real man, who is united miraculously to that eternal son. Let's make two applications. 
The first application is this. The Son sits enthroned at the Father's right hand. We're going to spend more time on that. It's coming up. But he sits enthroned at the Father's right hand, not only interceding for us. That's important. We're not diminishing it. But while he's interceding for us, he's upholding all things. He's upholding 93 billion and counting light years of things so small that we need extra special machines to see them, to even know that they exist. We would never see them by our eyes. And we must let this sink in, and I mean that. Meditate on this. That God is the God of all who repent and believe. We must let this sink in. Jesus, the God-man, not only created the universe, he has and ever will sustain it by his mighty power, his almighty power. He created all things, and he sustains all things according to his sovereign will. Stars come, stars go. Planets come, planets go. People come, people go. And creatures and everything in this universe is under his sovereign will. Everything. Are you listening? Everybody's thinking right now that the guy that's about to be put in jail is going to deliver us politically. Well, you can go ahead and think about that. Politics is an important thing. But you need to know who the king is. You need to know who the king is so that whenever, whatever comes down the track toward us, you're ready to face it because you know that God is sovereignly controlling it all. Without that, you won't have much of a hope. You'll be looking for a human savior after all, not the one who is the God-man but the one who's just man. And the arm of flesh will fail you, the word of God says. The arm of flesh will fail you. I will fail you. So will every pastor on the planet, but not Christ. I don't want to fail anybody, but I do. Jesus sustains, listen, Jesus sustains every heartbeat. Every, how many people are in here? How many heartbeats do you think have been going on since this, the sermon began? He's kept them all going. Every breath that you take, every cell in your body according to his purpose. While the babe that nursed at Mary's breast drew his sustenance from her, his deity sustained the entire universe from the largest star to the smallest particle. Try to get that picture in your mind. That little babe nestling against his mother's breast, holding the universe together while he had to be changed. While the child grew, Luke 2 says, and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him, 
his eternal deity and all-knowing deity knew all the stars, all the planets, heavenly bodies by name and sustained them. While he was answering questions for the, the temple scholastics, while the man Jesus worked miracles by the Holy Spirit, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out devils, his deity sustained the heartbeats, the breath, the crops, the life events, and every single aspect of righteous and wicked people's lives. All of it! You believe that? It's what this book is teaching you. That's why, for those who don't believe it, say, this is all crazy. Who would believe these fairy tales? A babe suckling at his mother's breast, holding the universe together. The God-man did and does. Listen, he sustained and fed all creatures in the seas, in the caves, in the fields, on the mountaintops, and in all the earth. While the man Christ Jesus was beaten, scourged, spat upon, nailed to a cross, and hung in agony between heaven and earth, his deity sustained his enemies' lives so that they could torture him and crucify him under the wrath of his father for people like you and me. Do you believe that? Who is that that you say you believe? He's probably something that was pinned to a, a flannel board. Looked like a cartoon. That's not the God of heaven and earth. Oh, my friends, while the man Christ Jesus was in unimaginable anguish and agony and gave up his spirit into his father's hands, his, de his deity sustain sustained the life of all creatures, wherever they were, whatever they were, animal, human, angelic, demonic, and the entire universe to its smallest particle. Jesus the man lived, breathed, died, and rose again to save his people from their sins. He calls to sinners. He's calling today in every faithful church. He's calling today. Come unto me. Repent of your sins. I am gracious. I am merciful. I died and I rose again to put away the sins of all that will come to me. Come to me with childlike faith and you will have everlasting life. Will you hear his words? He's the express image of God. He's the one holding all things together. His deity held it all upheld it all, it upholds it all, and will uphold all things for all eternity. This is the Son whom God commanded us 
to hear. And that's why he's better than the prophets. That's why he's better than what they heard from Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Moses and all of the great prophets. Because Jesus is something they never were or could be. He was the God-man. Our second and last application, the Son will uphold his people throughout their lives. Whenever troubles discomfort you, listen, whenever troubles discomfort you, whenever calamities disorder you, whenever friends or family abandon you, whenever heartaches tear you up, whenever weaknesses take you down, whenever diseases take you out, whenever sorrows rob your joy, whenever weakness takes you down, whenever enemies surround you, whenever tragedies confound you, whenever depression swallows you, whenever your best efforts fail you, whenever sin ensnares you, whenever persecution threatens you, whenever death stalks you, God's Son will uphold you. Do you believe that? It's your only hope. Do you believe that? Remember, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 says, All things, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Look around. Go out. Look at all the stars in the sky. He's holding them up right where they're supposed to be. When he's ready for them to burn out, they'll burn out. When he wants a new one, he'll make it. That's why when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, you have a hope that is real. Go out and look at this. Go out and look. And say, he can hold up that sky. He can hold me up through this. Second Corinthians, remember it. Chapter 12, verse 9 and 10. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength, do you understand what kind of strength that is? For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. A lot of men think, Oh, if I show any weakness, I'm not being a real man. 
I'll tell you that a real man says, I'm as weak as it comes, and without Christ, I'm going to blow it. That's what real men do, and they look to Jesus Christ. Is that what you do? Who are you looking toward? What are you resting in? Better not be the arm of flesh. It will fail you. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches. Go ahead and say whatever you want to say about me. I'm reproachful. Is that your attitude? I deserve what people say. In fact, I can tell you, it's not as bad as they're saying it. I ought to be in hell. Is that the way you think? You should. In reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Why? Because Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. And that begins with his people. He loved them before the foundation of this world. And he came into this world to save them from themselves and to save them from their sins. So is it not clear, my precious brethren, my brothers, my sisters, is it not clear Jesus Christ, the Son, is almighty God, true God, and true man. He was at one time a babe that had to be held and changed while sustaining the universe. He speaks to us in the scriptures by his blessed Holy Spirit. Let us hear him. Let us love him, obey him, and worship him. We always need him, especially in perilous times. Amen. No vessel of dust, O Lord. No vessel of dust can hold forth thy beauty and thy glory as it ought to be. But it is here in thy words for those who come to seek thee. O Father, may all of thy dear children here make sure that they know this Jesus, this God-man, this Trinitarian Son, Oh, Father, I pray that thou wouldst help us to know and to love this precious Savior who shed his blood to wash away our sins. Move upon the hearts of those here today. And I pray, oh God, that as we go through this day, we truly will offer it all up to thee, whether we are with the saints of God or whether we are alone in our closets, whether we settle down with thy word or in prayer or just to praise you and thank you for what thou hast done. May we use this day to thy glory and to our soul's 
good. I thank thee for loving us. Help us to love thee and to love one another. I pray it all in the name of Christ the Lord. Amen. If you would please stand for the benediction. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. Do you hear it? He sustains his people. Working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let us go in the name of Christ Jesus.